0: I hear buzzing still, can you deal with that? Keep talking? Is that what you I'm on. Good. Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. Chapter two. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter two verses one through seven. Ephesians two, one through seven. children of wrath like the rest of mankind but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, true Word. To the church let's pray Father I pray simply that the power of your grace that raised Jesus bodily from the dead to immortal eternal resurrection life and seated Him in His ascension and His Sovereign One over the universe, that You, by that power, this morning be working, causing dead persons to be raised. Causing Your church, us, to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened that we would see more. We would get more and more from the depths of our being, the reality of this text. And that, therefore, you would plant us on firm ground in this present evil age to stand for the truth of the gospel, for the salvation of souls, and for the glory of Christ. Amen. one of the foundational doctrines to understanding who Jesus Christ is. I don't mean Jesus like it's used a lot. But to understand the historical personage and work of Jesus Christ, to understand the Gospel, one of the foundational doctrines is to understand the doctrine of sin. Not just, oh yeah, no one's perfect. To err is human and to forgive is divine. Uh -uh. No, no. But, But in order to really understand who Christ is and what He has done and what Christianity is, a person must grasp the nature of the sin problem. Of your sin problem. The question is this. Are we really, naturally, like Paulo who was born this morning at two-something in the morning? If he were you and I naturally hopeless, Without God acting upon our souls and raising us spiritually from the dead. While, as Paul will say, we were yet sinners, God acted. Are we really that hopeless? And therefore, we who are in Christ played a Zero percent in our salvation. Is that Christianity? Or, maybe we did cooperate with God in this salvation, as many people today believe. It goes something like this. God comes to dead spiritual corpses as Paul will say we were dead in our sin and he because of Christ and the gospel then he reaches out his hand over the spiritual coffin and leaves it there and says reach up and grab my hand and if you do he will raise you out of that spiritual coffin into new life of salvation those are two different, massive views of the doctrine of sin and thus the doctrine of salvation. See, if that second one, God reaches up and leaves His hand above your dead corpse, and now if you can reach up and grab Him, you'll be saved. If that is true, as many believe, then you've got to hear this. I would totally agree with many, many present day Christians on how you should therefore do life and do church. Because the logical conclusion from that doctrine would be we need to get rid of this old-fashioned seminary training of pastors where it was mainly focused on teaching them to read really well the Scripture. To interpret and to apply and to preach the Scripture. And to understand the great doctrines that went before them in human history that they're not alone. We just need to undo that because if this idea, God reaches out His hand, and somehow if you can raise it up and grab hold of His, you'll be saved. That old-fashioned seminary training is really wrong but instead, we need new tricks. We need new methods in order to get spiritually dead people out there in the world to raise their hand up and reach to God. However, we do it, if salvation is at stake, then why not do it? And so we start by cleaning Jesus up a little bit. I mean,. Do not bring up Jesus' words when they're negative. Don't bring up Jesus' words about hell and about sin and about God's perfect holy anger injustice called wrath. Don't scare the people. I mean, they're spiritually dead in the spiritual coffin. We want them to reach up. So we'll clean up the Scripture and be very selective and very creative. And God forbid that you get clear about the bloody slaughter of Christ on a cross which was God Himself killing Him, punishing your sins. Don't tell them that. because. They will run. They won't reach up. But instead, we need to make the church comfortable for those persons in the world who are walking according to this present age who are walking according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is right now influencing them, causing them to be sons and daughters of disobedience to the one true God. We need to figure out how to make church comfortable for them because we want them to raise up their hand. And we can control it. And we can tell them how to do it. We'll help you dead spiritual corpse. Get rid of everything else I just said about Jesus' words, Paul's words. Just boil it down to, Jesus loves you. And He's got a really good plan for your life. And keep everything else ambiguous. And say, no, this is all you got to do. Raise your hand up. Okay, this is what I mean by that mean this in your heart. Okay, you've got, you got to mean this. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. And if you do, He will, and you'll be saved. Wrath will be removed. Heaven is assured for you. Christianity is not a religion. It's not about going to church and all that. But you might want to come to our church because we've got 103 different programs. You can probably find one that re- fits your niche. You're a surfer. We've got a surfing Christian program struggle with addiction we have 12 step program for, that might be your niche we got whatever you want we have it for you okay. all of that is really logical if it's true that the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation means god reaches out his hand and now you as a spiritual dead corpse, if you could reach up and grab it, you'll be saved. The logical conclusion is let's do whatever we can to sell Sell. a car or to sell Jesus to them so they reach up. Their hand. And there's just one thing that is really wrong with this prevalent kind of Christianity. And that is... It is absolutely unrecognizable to a clear reading of Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through chapter 2, verse 7. Much less the rest of the New Testament. And the divide in these two views of sin and salvation within the church is huge. And that divide has a lot to do with how we preach. With what we preach. To how we do church and church life. And to how we think we ought to live. Are you there? Ephesians 2. As we come now into chapter 2, you need to do a mental exercise. You need to block out that big number 2. It's not there. Don't do that. It can be very, very deceptive. Hello, chapter 2. We're done with chapter 1. That means we're going into a new subject, like a textbook in college. Another chapter, another Topic. There's no connection. Hmm. Paul did not write the chapter numbers. He didn't write verses. He wrote a letter. And there is a connection, and the connection is profound. And it goes straight to the doctrine of conversion to Jesus Christ. And it focuses now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 7 on God. Being the only worker. 100% in the salvation of each individual soul. There is no room in this text for the idea that salvation is a joint effort. Not with the grace he's referring to here in this passage. And so what Paul is doing in chapter 2, verses 1-7, to from the larger context we've been in for two months, is Paul is not in a new topic. He is showing now, here's the illustration of the exceedingly great power of God working through Jesus Christ, raised and ascended and sovereign over all demonic realms. Let me show you this power Christian, you see that you believe in Jesus? That's the power. That's what He does. So in order to not lose the forest of Ephesians and what Paul's doing so far for the trees, okay, what I want to do first in order to keep that large picture clear is I'm going to read to you my paraphrase. From chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. Just paraphrases I'm going to do my best. This is how I've argued. This is how I see it. This is how I've interpreted this through the, through the weeks. And so to say it on purpose in different words to draw out the flow and the meaning. Paul writes. We who are saved are to praise God for all the spiritual blessings He has freely lavished upon us. Think about it. Before the foundation of the world, He chose us to be saved in Christ. He predestined us to be adopted into His family. That's why we have been redeemed by the bloody death of Jesus. All of our sins have been forgiven because of God's plan to pour out the riches of His grace upon us. That's why all of you who are Christians came to faith when you heard the gospel of your salvation. Your faith in Jesus is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit who sealed you and guaranteed your future inheritance of the resurrection from the dead unto eternal life. This is why I, Paul, constantly pray that the Father would continue to open the eyes of your hearts so that you would really grasp the hope that is laid up for you at Jesus' second coming. And I pray that you would awaken to the power of God that has already invaded your life by calling you to see and to love And to believe in Jesus. Let me tell you about how that power saved sinners like you. It's the power that God has put into action in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him as sovereign ruler over all created realms, angelic and satanic. Everything has been put in subjection to this one resurrected and ascended human being. Our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God gave to us as a gift. That is to us the church, which is His very body on earth. And through that body, He is showing forth Jesus' sovereign rule over all things. Chapter two Let me show you God's exceedingly great power at work through the authority of this ascended Jesus. Christian, take your own lies as an example. You were all spiritually dead to God in your sin nature. You all lived lives under the sway of demonic forces and godless cultures of this world. You had zero inclination to obey God from the heart. You lived according to your natural God-hating desires. And you were all destined for God's wrath on Judgment Day. But think about it. Christ is ascended Over all powers that held you bound. Over demonic influence and over your spiritual death, He ruled. And so God in His love and in His mercy, yes, His love for you even when you were spiritually dead and you could not respond to the Gospel with a heart of faith on your own, through His love, He made you alive through new birth. He spiritually raised you from the dead and united you to His Son by the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did He do it? He did it for this great goal that in eternity future he would be showing off his immeasurable riches of his grace to us in his tender kindness which comes only through Jesus Christ and all that I've just said there Paul says, the words that he will write, by grace you have been saved, that's what he means by the word. Grace. Alright, there's the forest. Let's look at the text. There are two main parts in chapter 2, verses 1-7. through seven. The first block is one through three, where he lays out the nature of our sin problem. The second part is verses four to seven. God's power reigning through Christ and overcoming the problem. God acting in mercy and specific and special love by breathing life into dead spiritual. Corpses. And so, in the first block, Paul's setting up <laughs> the kicker, the second block, God's power. He's setting up God's exceedingly great power toward us who believe the way he said it in chapter 1. And so he sets up the sin, the nature of sin, problem. Everything in verses 1-4 to is pointing to and setting up the climax of verse 5. God raised us from the dead to new life in Christ. So let's start with verses 1. A little bit of 2. Paul begins, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So, stop. Notice the prior condition of all Christians. Paul says it was death. We were dead in trespasses and sins. What does He mean? I was born on September fifth, 1961. And through the 60's and through the 70's, I know I was alive. But He says I was dead. So He does not mean physical death. You were physically dead. He means spiritual death. An internal, soulish death. Death in relationship to God. And then Paul goes on and he describes this death, okay? He describes how the walking dead like Joe LeMay, I was a zombie, yes. We believers once were dead, but we were walking around. We lived our natural lives. So he says it this way, By dead, in your sins, I mean we Christians were, past tense, we were following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air the Spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, Christians, all of us once lived in the passions of our sin nature, flesh. Carrying out the desires of the flesh and of the mind And we were, by nature, children of wrath. Just like the rest of mankind. Paul says, if you're a believer, he says, this was you. And I just have to assume Paul expects all believers, let me, let, me, let me preface it with this, particularly when you have a post-pubescent conversion experience as opposed to some who come to faith in Christ at age six. Okay? Particularly when you have a post-pubescent, Paul expects all Christians to identify with exactly what he said. Yes, I am different. There's something that's radically different. That's me. You're right, Paul. We walked. We did life as if we were at home in the world. At home in this godless, Christless culture of Asia Minor, or 21st century United States. He didn't say, you really worked hard at this. I mean, you had a religion to to be hedonistic and just live according to what felt good. He he doesn't say that at all. He's implying, you didn't even have to think about it. All you did was awaken out of the birth canal and feel. And I feel it and I follow it. That's how He puts it. You just were led by your desires that are natural. And that's what you followed after. You're led by others who were following after that in your culture of the world. And that's what you followed after. Oh, we may have been oblivious to this and people may sit in here this morning and be oblivious to this. But He says, not only that, you were under the sway of other beings who are demonic, leading you into various lifestyles. That's what he says. We once lived that way. What do you mean? Just give a taste. Here's how Paul lays out a little bit. Just a taste of lifestyle. In in Galatians five, he says it this way: the works of the flesh. It goes back to how Paul used the word flesh also in our text following the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, just hatred towards persons, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Or in Romans 1, Paul describes our natural state this way, they were filled, that's us, with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, Covetousness, malice toward others. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We all once lived following that railroad track of life unabated, he said. And thus, Paul says, by our very nature, God's impending wrath hung over us. Judgment day was always coming. And the wrath of God against us was just. That's what he says. We were children of wrath by our very nature like the rest of the human race. Remember Romans 1? The great unfolding in its fullness of the Gospel. Paul starts in the middle of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11. And how does he start off the great treatise of the Gospel, which is the power of God? He says it this way. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of human beings who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's how He starts it off. And He's preaching the Gospel. To understand who the Savior is, you have to understand... Who God is and thus your sin and thus wrath Paul what he's doing in our text is he, he's making it very clear in Ephesians 2 every human being except one Jesus born into this world by their very nature are children of wrath he's another way of him saying everyone is Romans 3:23 for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what he means when he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what does he mean there? You're dead in your sins. He means that in our natural state of rebellion against God, it was total. You were dead. You weren't pure as human. No one's perfect. We all have flaws. Paul's not going to the surface acting out of our nature. He's going to our nature. You were not in a coma. You were not unconscious. You were dead in your sins. And it's His way of saying, therefore, do you understand the power of God, Christian? His grace that He's going to show forth forever. Do you understand this? He's saying, apart from the grace of God coming to you a dead corpse, In raising you up, you would suffer under the wrath of God. He's saying it is impossible for us by our very nature to believe the Gospel, to love this God, to want Him to rule over us. It is impossible. Because we're spiritually dead. And that inclination to say, Rule over me. That inclination to notice the way Jesus said, You are the treasure in the field. Yes, I want it. No, you don't. And you won't. And you can't. Paul put it this way in Ephesians, I mean, Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And he means it. Well, Dennis Prager, he's a pro-religious guy. He wants people to become religious. He doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, but he does this to millions of people. So doesn't he seek God? Isn't he encouraging others to seek God? No. Any more than the Pharisees that Jesus constantly confronted. The answer is no. No one. No one. Yeah, the world is religious. You can't help it. Even atheists have their religion. You can't help but try to figure out some God idea of existence and purpose. But no one seeks for the true God by nature. They just don't. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's why Paul says in Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh these are Paul's terms in Ephesians 2 remember also the flesh mind set on the flesh is hostile to god doesn't mean it's not religious the church of jesus christ paul promised for 2000 years at least so far will be filled constantly with people beckoning tickle my ears Give me what I want. And it means my flesh. And there will be preachers. And there will be books. And there will be professors that will tickle ears. The mindset on the flesh is Hostile to God because it, the mindset on the flesh, does not submit to God. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please. Paul's point is, we are all naturally hopeless. We cannot believe in the glorious message of Jesus with a childlike heart of faith that will cry out, Abba, Father. It's impossible! Unless God the way Paul puts it in our text, unless God in His love and mercy acts upon our hearts. Because that's Paul's doctrine of sin. That's why Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. That's why Jesus said in John 6:44, "No one can come to me." That's what Paul's saying in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. For by nature, we're all children of wrath. We're dead in our sin. We cannot come to Jesus. No one can come to me. Oh, and then His glorious Word. Unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. This is what Paul's talking about when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person, the person who is not born again or spiritually raised from the dead yet, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him or her. And he or she is not able to get it to understand them because they are only spiritually gotten at or discerned. See, this is exactly what Paul is driving at in our passage. And you were dead by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In that right there, those verses 1 to 3, then lead up to two of the biggest, most grace filled words in the Bible. The beginning of verse 4. But. God. But. God. And then there's no verb yet. Because the verb is held off for Paul because he goes on to describe this God before he gets to what God is doing. But God, being rich, or you could say who is who is rich, In mercy, because of... This is going to modify the verb that's coming. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. What love is He talking about? The context. He chose you. He predestined you unto adoption. That's what He's referring to. This is the love that saved you, believer, even when we were dead in our trespass. I mean, I don't know what to do because Paul can't be more clear. You see, even if Jesus comes and He goes to the cross and He dies for sins and He rises from the dead and He's seated at the right hand of the Father, nobody will ever be saved. No one will respond with saving faith unless at the cross Jesus also purchased our new birth. Unless at the cross Jesus purchased God's action of raising us spiritually from the dead in order that we would see and believe. I I felt my mother in a coffin. This body was not going to get up. A spiritual body is not getting up. And it's not going to see. Unless God raises it spiritually. And then, I see... So if you get what's going on here in chapter 2, verses 1-7 through here, and you take it in the full context, do you see why Paul started back in chapter 1, verse 4? Christian, he chose you before he created anything. Christian, he predestined your conversion to Christ. Why? Because if we were not chosen to be freed from the entanglement of our spiritual death and the entanglement of demonic spiritual powers and the spirit of the world, we would have never responded to the Gospel, to the person of Jesus with saving faith. That's what Paul is teaching us. And... That is part of the mystery Paul is referring to. To Paul is not peripheral. When he talks about the mystery I'm entrusted with, and he will go on as we have seen in chapter 3 in saying, God now through this mystery revealed and now written, is doing it now through the church throughout the ages. These great mysteries that used to be hidden are now revealed since the coming of Christ. And it's so central to Paul, this mystery. It's not merely deeply embedded in his theology. It is because... Don't ever be fooled by the rhetoric of Christian persons today that like to separate theology from practice or practicality. Because everyone has a worldview, everyone has a theology that is allowing them to do or to not do what they're doing. You see, millions of young persons are out there having sex with persons who are not married to them. And they call themselves a Christian. There's a reason they have a theology. And the question is always, is this the Gospel? Are we getting it right? Paul had a theology about sin and the nature of spiritual death that so drove him in how he practiced his evangelism. Let me just give you a taste of it. So... Paul practically, how does this work itself out? He writes to the Corinthians in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. This is what I do. I and my missionary band, we go to places we haven't heard the Gospel yet. It's what we want to do. It's what I feel called to do. And they go, and they go to another city, and another city, and this is what we do, he says. We preach Christ crucified. Give them the Gospel. Result? Our message doesn't work. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. We go to the Jews first. Then we go to the non-Jews. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the non-Jews. That's Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 3. Paul knows it. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the earth, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Paul expects this. But he's not done in 1 Corinthians. This is how it works. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. We expect it. That's what's going to happen. But, ooh, that but, just put that but right together with Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But, God. But to those, as we go to these cities and preach, to those who are called from among both Jews and non-Jews, something happens. Christ to them is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. Here's the verb. But God made us alive. Together with Christ. So, made us alive in the context has to be connected with His Word dead, doesn't it? So if we were not physically dead, spiritually dead, to be made alive for Paul has got to mean he spiritually made you alive to Himself. Paul says the same thing in what we just read in First Corinthians. Different words. He called you, made you alive. Okay, put them together with the analogy. Lazarus, dead physical corpse. They don't respond normally, just so you know. Come. And that corpse got up. Came. Okay. God raised Him from physical death. God called, Christ called Lazarus back from physical death to life. It's the same terminology here for Paul. He raised us up. So therefore, Paul's got to mean Christian. He undid your natural state of spiritual death. He did the undoing by raising you by the Holy Spirit from the dead so that you would taste and see that He is good and He's a glorious Savior. That's what he says. And then Paul stops pretty abruptly at that point Because he's going to say what he says here in verse 8. But he stops. I want the church to get it. And he puts in this parenthetical, a parenthesis. By grace, you have been. yes, there's common grace. Yes, there's ongoing grace. Okay, In this context, what does He mean by grace? He cannot mean in this context, grace of Jesus died for sins. Believe in Him and you'll be saved. So here's grace reaching out and some people accept that grace. And others reject that grace and aren't saved. He cannot mean that in this context. Because this is the grace that changes the heart so it does accept Jesus as its Savior. This is the grace that he says raises you from the dead. This is the grace of new birth new spiritual life in the context and if that's not persuasive enough just just for jump ahead for a moment because in verse 8 Paul then just makes it triply triply not the place you know one more than doubly clear for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it's the gift of god now i guess i'm gonna have to come back here right we haven't really dealt with but i'm just look in the original in the greek the word grace is a feminine noun the word faith, Pastis is a feminine noun. Normally, when you therefore now have a pronoun here, a demonstrative pronoun, the word this, it's going to agree with this antecedent, what it's referring back to. And they're both feminine. And Paul puts it in the neuter. And it's His way of saying, I don't mean merely the faith. I don't mean merely the grace. I mean the whole clause. Your faith is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, The Gospel, the the full Gospel, the complete Gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. And the further that we, the visible church in the world, gets away from the whole truth, the more false conversions we will create. And the more polluted the Visible church will become. And and I want you to do you see what Paul is telling us that should guide Christians, should guide local churches on what to preach, on how to preach, and how to teach? You got to think about this. Paul is relieving us of a huge burden. And He lived His life without this burden. And that is the burden of this. Paul, you, or any Christian churches and preachers down the road of history cannot save anybody. You can only be faithful God's called the church to be clear with His glory manifested in His Son, Jesus Christ. Be crystal clear about the whole counsel of God. And God will save those who are His. This relieves the church from having to I'm not creative enough. I have no ingenuity here on to get people saved on my scheming and remarketing the product of Jesus you're not called to. You're called to be clear with the good news of Jesus Christ. We're commissioned to be clear about the Gospel, about who God is, about what sin and sin nature is, about God's justice and judgment that is coming, and about His Son, the only Savior from the wrath to come. All churches, all Christians, are duty-bound to deliver God's message undiluted and through that God calls those who are his is it no wonder i don't want you to turn to anything but just look is it i want to read to you is it no wonder that paul writes to the church of corinth these following and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Because I decided, okay, you got to get him, I decided to make sure I didn't do that. For I decided to know nothing among you Accept the gospel. Accept Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And personally, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit. And of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom or charisma of men, but in the power of God. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn by us in our example, not to go beyond what is written. You see, we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But instead, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But Paul, if you do this, you're going to be a failure. You can win so many more people if you just had a more I don't, modern approach. Dress it up a little bit or something. Paul was very aware of this in the first century. He fought against this in the first century. Read 2 Corinthians. And he calls them false teachers. I'm sorry, I'm going to, I, I interrupted. Let me continue to read Paul. We just say, here's the plain truth and we present it openly and plainly. God, you're here, and your conscience is there, and we're satisfied to leave it. Okay. Paul, people may just reject it that way if you just do it. Okay, this is what he says in response. Okay. Okay. And even if our Gospel is veiled, they can't see it. I accept that. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the Gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, For what we proclaim is not ourselves. But we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as Your servants. For Jesus' sake. Because why? God who said, Let light shine out of darkness and created everything. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is why Paul speaks to Corinth that way. We are living in a post-Christian culture. Which means, it bugs us some, and it's exciting on another hand. Because it means the contrast between Christ's body in America and the culture at large, that contrast between white and black will become starker and starker and starker and clearer and clearer. And therefore, this above all times we have lived is a time, Christian, to stand. To stand for undiluted, unadulterated clarity of the Gospel that saves people's souls and that sanctifies the church and empowers the church for warfare and battle in this culture. It is a time to stop playing church. And to believe. And to live and to proclaim the undiluted truth of the Scriptures. And to trust that God knows what He is doing. And He'll do it. Amen. Father, into Your hands... I commit these people, if there are any souls here that are dead in sin, I beg of You through the glory of Your Son and unto His glory You raise them up. So they'll sit up out of the coffin and taste. And they'll see the goodness of such a great salvation. And that You would cause us, Your people whom You have plucked out of the culture, out of darkness, and You have made us, by the Holy Spirit, by new life in Christ, to feel and to sense we are aliens down here. And so, as aliens, may we Be in the world, but not of it. May we be on mission in faithfulness to the culture with the gospel in our own little lives as You have given them. Glorify Your Son. Amen.